Good morning. It's good to be back with you. We were <clears throat> gone last weekend, and from what I hear, we missed quite a weekend. <laughs> but if you look outside, hope is coming, and uh, all things will be made new. So that's our hope. Uh, I want to just give a mention about the preaching schedule here before we jump into Malachi chapter 3 this morning, just so you can kind of be aware of where we're going between now and summer. Um, Next weekend, if, if you get the emails from the church, you know that Joey Dutcher will be with us. Joey is our candidate for associate pastor, and he's going to be preaching here next Sunday, and we're really excited for you to meet him and to hear his handling of the word. And so he'll be here. I won't be preaching. Joey will be preaching next Sunday. And then the following Sunday on, on May 7th, Kevin Fetter will be here. Kevin's been on the schedule for three or four months, I think, before we knew all of the candidating stuff that was going to happen. But Kevin was a pastor of the Glory of Christ Fellowship in Elk River, whom we merged with about a year ago, if you remember that. And so we've been wanting to have Kevin come and encourage us from the Word. He is really excited to be here, and I'm excited for you to hear from Kevin as well. So when we come back then in a couple weeks to Malachi... I'm going to finish the text that we start today. I won't have time to say everything that needs to be said here today. So we'll pick up in Malachi 3, and then we will end the book of Malachi and our Minor Prophets series on the end of May. And so once we come to June, if you've been around Grace for more than a year, you know that June means psalms. Our first summer together as a church, we started with Psalm 1, and every summer month, we just work our way through the Psalms, and in about 14 years, we'll get through the whole book, <laughs> working that way. We do a psalm a, a psalm a week. It's been a real blessing. So that's where we're going in the preaching schedule, if you want to sort of follow along uh, as we go. So I'm excited for all the things that are coming in the church. Uh, keep tuned to your email and read the bulletins. There's lots of stuff happening, but it's really exciting and a good demonstration of God's grace to us. But I'm excited to be back with you here this morning. And uh, as you're turning to Malachi 3, I'll just make a mention of something I observed here in the passage we're going to read, that it appears the people of God are, are straying from what the Lord had commanded them. So we're going to see them ask two how questions in this text. They're going to say, how have we robbed you and how can we return to you? And these aren't really clarification questions as much as they are a rebuttal to what God has said. The people don't understand that because of their inattention, because they haven't paid notice or heed to God's law and his command and his instruction, there is a, a distance that has been created between them and God. So God calls them to return, and they don't understand why that's necessary, because they've been doing all the right things. And it's kind of like, I don't know if anyone's ever gone hiking or walking where it's somewhat unfamiliar, the life-saving thing can be in those times, road signs. You guys ever go, we go up to the Superior National Forest and hike on the trails up there, and it is really helpful to have a sign that says, oh, if you want to get to so-and-so falls, you take a left here, or if you don't want to die, you go straight here, or, you know, these kinds of helpful signs that show up. Well, God has given his people trail signs. He's given them indicators and instructions to keep them where he knows they will flourish, where they will do well, where they will be happy and content in him. But, as we've seen before, God's people don't always listen that well. So this is the situation we're kind of stepping into this morning as we get into Malachi chapter 3. So if you haven't done so, open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 6 
and I'll read 6 through 12. So follow along and read verse 6 through 12 with me. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruit of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray together as we begin this morning. Father, like every other time we have gathered and opened your word together, we ask now for your help. And I pray for grace in the preaching and grace in the listening. And Lord, we don't want to get it wrong. We want to pay attention to the instruction and the signs and the warnings that you give to your people. And so I ask now for your spirit to come and open our understanding that we would submit ourselves to your word that we would be eager to do what it tells us to do. Lord, you've not given commands that are, that are heavy or simply hard. You have given commands that are impossible. <laughs> and apart from the work of your spirit, we have no hope of being pleasing to you. So please show us from the word, Lord, how we can live lives that are pleasing to you. How we can honor you in every part of our walk. It's our desire. It's my desire for this church, for myself. So would you come and do it. We give you thanks, Lord, for how you've worked in the past, and we trust that you will continue this faithfulness into the future. So we commit ourselves to you, and we ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, as we pick up in verse 6, I want to make two connections backwards to other parts in Malachi that will kind of help us, I think, get a handle on what's going on here. So verse 6 I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So the, the first look back we're going to take is to the last section we covered, which would be chapter 2, 17 to 3, 5. And if you remember this, the people have complained against God. And their main complaint is that all the people around them who do not follow Yahweh, who are not in the community of Israel, they're all doing great. Things are going well for them. They prosper. All the wicked seem to be doing very well while God's people spin their wheels, as it were. And so the people look at this and they accuse God of being unjust. They say, do you see what's going on here, God? That the wicked prosper while we are struggling? You must love what they're doing. This is uh, chapter 2, verse 17, when they say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, and saying, where is the God of justice? So you remember this, this indictment, kind of, that the people bring against God. So God says, okay, chapter 3, verse 5, I'm going to return. 
Where is the God of justice? Here I am, and I'm coming to deal with all of the injustice, not just with the icky sinners around you, but with you. And as he recites some of the areas that he is going to come and deal with in chapter 3, verse 5, the adultery, the faithlessness, those who lie and who oppress the hired worker and his wages, who do not fear the Lord, the people hear this coming judgment, they go, "Uh uh-oh, that's us. We have acted this way. If you remember earlier from chapter 2 and 3 that the people have acted faithlessly. So they hear this from God saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to deal, yes, with all the injustice. Not just the people outside, but with yours. And they get a little bit nervous because God is going to come and deal indiscriminately with the sin that he sees. But then comes this reassuring message in verse 6. That because God is unchangeable, because he is faithful to his word, more than that, because he's faithful to his covenant that he has established with his people, they will not be utterly destroyed. Right? He's going to come and deal, but it is going to be, as we saw in the early part of chapter 3, a refining, a purification. This is not judgment unto destruction, And God reassures his people of this in verse 6, that they will not be utterly ruined. And now the fact that he calls them the children of Jacob, which is not a common designation, it shows up every now and then, but that was meant to remind the people of how God had started these oracles through Malachi. Do you remember back from Malachi chapter 1? God opens this whole account through Malachi by saying, this is chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And God answers and says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. So when we come to chapter 3, verse 6, and we see God call his people the children of Jacob, that should remind them, okay, God has already established that because we are the descendants of Jacob, he loves us. He has chosen us. We are his. The the coming judgment is not going to wipe us out, but will be a purifying, refining type of work. Because God is faithful to his word. He never changes. God's people are not consumed in the same flood of judgment that the wicked will experience. And I think this is such an act of grace on God's behalf. Have you ever stopped to think about this combination of God's patience and his grace? Why does God put up with a world that rejects him? Why does God tolerate his own people who neglect his word, who disobey his law, who routinely go after shiny things in the world? Why does he do that? It's his patience and his grace. I mean, you could meditate on this for the rest of your life and not come to the end of it. And I just commend this to you. Think of the patience of God. You know in your own mind how you have broken the law of God. And yet here you are. Isn't that amazing? So God reminds his people, I don't change. The the promises that I have made to you The covenant that I have established with you will stand because I don't change. Therefore, you are not consumed. You'll be purified, but you won't be consumed, children 
of Jacob, my chosen people. Isn't that great? What a great reminder of God's faithfulness and his patience with his people. Now, I think it's very significant that verse 6 precedes verse 7, and that's the most that's uh, <laughs> the most obvious statement you'll hear today. But what God says in verse 6 prepares the people now. Because in verses 7 through 12, God is going to call out their neglect, their faithlessness, their disobedience, and how they have failed to keep his word, how they have created separation. But he's not saying this with an aim or an end to destroy them. He is saying this with a corrective voice that he wants them to return to him, to come back. And all of the external things we see, so whether it's talking about giving or tithing or sacrifices or conduct or whatever it is, all of the external things that God commands his people serve to bring their hearts back to him. We've seen this before and we're going to see it again this morning. It is not about the external things. God's desire, we're going to see this in verse 7, is that his people would return to him. But because we are dense, we need externals. We need things to remind us to return to God. Therefore, in his wisdom, he establishes things like sacrifice and giving and conduct and morals and all these things that are a reflection of his own character for our good. So let's pick it up in verse 7 and follow along. We'll keep moving through today. Malachi 3, 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Now, you might remember, earlier in Malachi, we spent a good amount of time looking at the significance of this phrase, turned aside. And we read several passages in the Old Testament where God explicitly commands his people do not turn aside, do not turn aside, do not turn aside. And yet, what do we see here? God says, you've turned aside. This is not good news. This is significant, spiritually speaking. This turning aside language means that the people have willfully disregarded the law of God. They, They understand to a degree what it's saying and they say, nope, we don't want to do that. We're going to follow our own way, our own desires, and we saw this play out in chapter 2 in a really ugly way, didn't we? With the faithlessness of the people in their conduct, in their marriages, in their truthfulness, and all these things. They have turned aside, and God tells them, you've left the path. You didn't pay attention to the signs that I put up for you. And as a result, they have wandered far from him. Now, in their preoccupation, their selfishness, and their sin. The people don't understand that this walking off of the path, as it were, has created separation between them and God. They think, well, we're still bringing some kind of sacrifice. We're still kind of obeying God, so what's the big deal? So when God says to them, you have robbed me, they ask him, wait a minute, how have we robbed you? And this isn't, this is not a question of clarification, both in verse 7 and verse 8, when they say, how shall we return, or how have we robbed you, they are not looking for a genuine way to fix this. They're not looking for a remedy. This is a question of dispute, and we've seen this, right, quite often, and we're going to see it again in the end of Malachi. These questions are not saying, okay, we're sorry, we've created a separation, tell us what to do. No, they're saying, how have we robbed you? 
How have we gone away from you? How should we return when we never left? You can kind of read in that tone as you read these questions here. Same thing in verse 8. How have we robbed you? Well, if we look back at the previous chapters, we see that this is a perennial problem with the people of God. Perennial just means ongoing, over and over again. They have consistently withheld from God what rightfully belongs to him. In Haggai, the first book we started in September, the problem was that the people were investing in their own homes, they were building sweet pads for themselves, and the temple of God remained unfinished. Remember that? We get to Zechariah, it's a spiritual problem. The people are withholding their affections. They are not recognizing the kingship of God and the redemption that he offers, so he calls them back. And here in Malachi, it's the same problem, where the people have withheld from God what rightfully belongs to him, to the degree that God says, you are robbing me, says the Lord of hosts. And the people, which we would probably say to How are we robbing you? Didn't we build the temple? Aren't we bringing sacrifices to you? Aren't we doing the things that need to be done? And God calls them out and says, no. No, you are withholding from me. And this is the main problem that we're dealing with here in this section of Malachi. Instead of bringing their best to the Lord, the people were keeping back for themselves what was rightfully his. And the failure of the people in this area didn't only affect their relationship with God, but that's primary, right? This has created a separation, and that is what God is dealing with, but it also had horizontal effects. In fact, when God says he'll reverse the curse of what's happened, you can read this in verse 10, I think, in 11. In verse 11, I will rebuke the devourer so that you will not destroy the fruits of your soil, the vine in your field. What was happening is that because of this curse, nothing was producing. The people's labor was empty-handed. Remember in Haggai it said you put money into a bag and it falls out the bottom? That was the kind of situation that was going on. So everything is affected here because the people of God have not been faithful to bring to the Lord what is rightfully his. Therefore, verse 9, you are cursed with a curse. You are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, before we get into 10 and 11 and we see the prescription. God says, if you're going to return to me, this is what you need to do. Before we get there, we need to understand, at least this is kind of where I hung up in my mind this week, and maybe you think the same way, we need to understand why God says that withholding something from him is on par with robbery. Do you get that? I mean, we see the problem, They're bringing things, but just not the right things. They're not fully engaged. They're not fully giving to the Lord what is his. And God says, you're robbing me. So how is it that bringing a less than acceptable sacrifice to God is robbing him? Do you understand that? This is where we need to understand. I was trying to think of what the best thing was to call this. I'm calling it God's universal ownership of all things. We need to understand that there is nothing in the world that does not belong to him. And I want to cite for you just a few passages that demonstrate this universal ownership of God because this is what the people of God should have understood. And all of the texts that I'm going to tell you are from the Old Testament. And I chose Old Testament texts because these would have been accessible to the people. 
in some way, verbal communication, written, whatever it was, they would have had access to this knowledge of God's universal ownership of all things. So bear with me, this will all make sense. Listen as I read Psalm 24, 1 and 2. And listen for this language in all these texts of God's ownership. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. If we back up just a couple books to Haggai 2.8, you remember God saying this, The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord. Psalm 50, <clears throat> verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. You getting it? Psalm 104, <clears throat> 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creation. Job 41, 11. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. You hear that? Do you believe those texts are true? That everything around you belongs to God. The pew that you are sitting in right now, the earth that you stand on, the clothes that you wear, all natural resources, all supernatural resources, all subatomic particles to the greatest mountain range belongs to God. He is the owner of everything. So, what happens when puny little mankind hangs on to what God has created and says, mine. It's robbery. It doesn't belong to us. It's God's. He owns everything in the world. And this is the reality that the people of God in Malachi 3 had missed. For the people to hang on to and retain what rightfully belonged to Almighty God was robbery. That's what we call it, right? If you take or keep something that doesn't belong to you, you can be prosecuted for that. Why? Because even the world recognizes that that's wrong. It isn't yours. Give it back. Parents, have you ever said that? That's not yours. Give it back. <laughs> we understand principles of ownership. But we have to understand before, before we ever start talking about giving or generosity or stewardship, or financial resources, we have to understand the universal ownership of God. Everything is His. And all we are, we are not owners, we are managers. The Bible uses the word steward, meaning we move around somebody else's resources. This is part of the problem with the people of God here. And I think we have the same problem a lot of times. We don't understand. We don't own anything. We get really possessive with things, don't we? I do. It's mine. I worked for it. I made it. Yeah, you just rearrange stuff. You didn't make it. God owns everything. And that is the principle that ought to drive God's people in generosity. But more on that in a moment. So, God exposes the problem. He exposes the sin and the shortcomings of his people but as he always does, he follows up with grace and with a prescription for what they are to do to come back to him. This is so kind of God. 
to give a remedy for his people. Let's read verses 10 and 11 and see what the Lord says. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. So what is a full tithe? God says, bring the full tithe back into my storehouse. Well, if we go back into the history of Israel, specifically back to the beginning, before the time of Moses, the tithe is only mentioned twice. Okay, Once in Genesis 14, as we see Abraham give 10% to Melchizedek, the king of Salem, when he comes out to meet him, he, he tithes. The word tithe just means a tenth or 10%. He gives 10% of everything. Later, Genesis 28, Jacob vows to give 10% of all he has to God. But those are the only two times we see this pre-Moses. Then it is not till the giving of the law through Moses that we see the tithe instituted as a command, as a matter of obedience for the people of God. If we look at Leviticus 27, we see that the people are instructed to set aside 10% of all they have to give to the Lord. All of their grain and their livestock and their monetary resources, all these things, 10% of that is said to be set aside and given to the Lord. Now this tithe was then given to the Levites. And this is how they were supported to work in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And so once the Levites got this tithe of 10% of everything the people had, they would tithe 10% off of that and give to the high priest. And that's how he was sustained for his work in the ministry of the tabernacle or the temple. So the tithe goes to support the people who work in the service of God. And it is given by the people of God for this purpose. Now, as it is with all the other aspects of the law... This was meant to show the people God's standard. It was meant to show them you need to depend upon the Lord for everything you need. You need to honor the Lord with the best that you have. And we've seen this all throughout these texts in Malachi. Now the reason I mention all these details about the tithe and where it instituted and how it got to be is because I want us to see this in Malachi not only as a matter of Okay, God's dealing with this and this over here, and then whoop, all of a sudden we're going over here to deal with money, and then we're going to come back and deal with something else. This is all under the umbrella of obedience to God. Obedience in the area of faithfulness in your marriage. Obedience in the area of truth-telling with your business. Obedience in the area of treating others the way that they should be treated. Obedience in the way of handling your finances this is all under the umbrella of the law and the command of God for the people here in Malachi 3. So when God tells them to bring the full tithe, the whole thing, back into the storehouse, what is he really doing? Is his concern the money? Is his concern that, oh no, if the people don't give, then the Levites aren't going to have what they need and we're going to have to close the doors to the temple and everything's going to be thrown off and God's up there just wringing his hands going, oh man, what are we going to do? What are we gonna do? I'll tell them to tithe. That's not what's happening. God, according to verse 7, is calling them to return to him. 
And he has covered all of these other areas of obedience to him, but he does not leave this out. This is a matter of obedience for the people. It is a matter of law-keeping. The problem isn't just physical provision. God doesn't care about the bulls and the goats. He cares about the hearts of his people. And as we have seen so many times, the problem is spiritual. And all of the external things, the, the visible demonstrations of the people of God reflect what is going on in their heart. So, when we see the situation that the people are not honoring God, they are not releasing their grip on what he has entrusted to them, it shows their cold-heartedness. It shows their lack of faith. It shows that they do not believe that God is able to do what he's able to do. And they've forgotten this principle of the universal ownership of God over all things. So in his grace, God reminds them of what needs to happen. Return to me. Be obedient to me. I've demonstrated my love for you. This is what he's calling them to do. Now if the people remember, and I think this is the big problem, we've, we've said this before, I think the, the big problem is forgetfulness. I mean it's sin, right, of course, but it's the sin of forgetfulness. They do not remember that God is the creator of all things, they do not remember how he has demonstrated his grace and kindness towards them in bringing them this far, rescuing them out of captivity, giving them the temple, giving them all that they need, and they still are being stingy with what God has given them. So... They need to remember all of these things about God. And when they do, God promises that he will open heaven and pour down on them a blessing. Now, we need to be really careful with verse 10. We need to be really careful with how we read and apply what is going on in verse 10. And this is, again, why I started with the principles behind the tithe and how it is instituted by God. So look very carefully. This is why I always ask you to have your Bible open. I don't want you to just take my word for it. You need to see what's going on in the text. So look with me at verse 10. What does it say this blessing is? I will open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until you are rich beyond your wildest dreams. Sorry, uh, wrong version. What does it say? I will pour down for you a blessing until your bank account has three more zeros. Nope, that's still the message translation. Let's get to the right one. Look at the end of verse 10. I will pour out a blessing until there is no more need. Do not take this verse and try to form it into some kind of transaction with God. God is not a vending machine where we take out our coin of obedience, put that in. We take out our coin of duty, put that in. And now all of a sudden God is obligated to vend or dispense to us what he owes us. Don't do that. That is not what this text says. This is a matter of obedience and covenant faithfulness. Remember, all of these things are under the umbrella of God's covenant relationship, which is blessing for obedience, punishment for disobedience. Now, we're seeing that they are under the punishment right now. That's what verse 9 says. You are under a curse. And God is saying, if you will return to me, if you will do what I have called you to do for your own good, I will pour out blessing so that you do not have need. 
If we make this some kind of transactional thing, we've totally missed the point. Be very careful of people who would turn this verse into some kind of self-improvement program. God sees right through that. That's not what it says. The blessing is that their needs will be met. The crops will grow. Things will start going right for them because they are being obedient to the revealed will of God. Contentedness and satisfaction are blessings that I think God gives 1,000 to 1 over financial prosperity. I'm not saying that it's always that way. There are people who God entrusts with tremendous resources and praise God for that. And I pray that they use them for the glory of God. But that is not the expectation for every believer. Faithfulness to God in the area of finances means not that you will get rich. You're not putting your coin into the vending machine. It means that God will meet your needs according to his riches in Christ. You see what I'm saying? Be very careful that we don't twist this into something that it's not. Now, I, I don't have enough time today to say all that needs to be said about this. That's why we're going to come back in a couple weeks and we're going to make some New Testament connections and we're going to see what's going on and what's our responsibility here when it comes to this principle of giving. But let's continue now. We saw that the tithe was commanded For the people in the Old Covenant, Leviticus 27, it's established, it's a matter of obedience. But the question I want to close with and kind of leave you hanging with, because we're not going to answer it for a couple weeks, what does obedience for you and I look like according to this passage? This This is Old Covenant Israel, right? They are living under the restraints of the law. They are obligated to do this. It's commanded. It's a matter of obedience for them. But every Sunday we come to the table and we raise the cup and we say, as Jesus said, this is the cup of the what? New covenant. So what does this mean for us? As new covenant believers, are you and I obligated to give 10% of everything we have to the Lord? How long should I pause? (laughs) That's a good question. And that's what we're going to answer next time we come back. But just as a little teaser, I just want to give you, you can probably pick up on where I'm at. I think the teaching of Jesus is really helpful in this area, specifically the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 8. In Matthew 5 through 8, Jesus takes the law as it was understood by the religious teachers of the day, and what does he do with it? He does not say, oh, You're keeping the law? Okay, you're good. You don't need to do anything else. He expands the territory and the dominion of the law. For example, I'll just give you one example. Matthew 5, 21, Jesus says, You have heard it said, do not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, and here comes the increase, I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. In other words, Jesus is saying, you cannot simply say, well, I've, I've kept the bare minimum, the, the obligation that the law lays out. I've done that. I'm good. No more requirement. He increases the demand of the law to point out our inability to keep it. And all throughout, he does this with 
several different things, and we'll look at these in a couple weeks. But using that principle of how Jesus interacts with the law, I'm saying, what do you think I'm going to say? No. I don't think we are bound to the law to keep the 10%. I think we are freed to do more. If all that we do is look at the tithe as a, whew, good, that's over with. I gave my 10%. Now I can do whatever I want with the other 90% of God's money. Does that sound like consistency with Jesus' teaching? Does that sound like it's in harmony with the, with the New Testament? No. But you can see there's some work that we have to do here, right? We have to understand the relationship that we now have with the commands of God. This is going to take some time, so that's why I'm taking a whole Sunday to look at this. But for now, I want to close with just a couple practical reminders for us. And I'm sorry if it feels like I'm leaving you hanging, but I kind of meant to, because I want you to come back so we can learn together what God expects of us. So two things, I'll close with my, a right and a wrong way to think about giving. Because that's what we're getting at, right? The, the tithe, the giving up of our resources to God, the, all the things that are tied up in that, that's, that's what we're kind of getting at here in Malachi 3. So I just want to close with just a little spoiler, if you will, on where I'm at with these things. A right and a wrong way to think about giving to the Lord. First, let's start with the wrong way. I already said this. It is wrong to think about God as a vending machine, as a transactional relationship, where if we just do what is required, if we do the bare minimum to appease our conscience and to say, okay, I've done it, I've gone through the motion, I put my check in the box, I clicked the donate button, I did whatever, whatever that means for you, whew, I'm good, I can go, and now I'll just sit back and wait for God to just pour out the blessing. It's like pulling the handle on the slot machine. This is not the right way to think about giving. Why? It's because of what we just saw about the universal ownership of all things of God. It all belongs to him. So where do we get off thinking that this tiny part of our life belongs to God and everything else we're going to decide what to do with? Don't think of God as a vending machine. You don't do what you do so that he does what he does. He does what he does because he's faithful. Not because you forced him to do it by your obedience. So don't think that way. The right way, I think, that we ought to look at giving, the right way to look at all of our financial resources is that everything belongs to God. Everything. There is, Paul asked the Corinthians, I think this is 1 Corinthians 3 or 4, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? In other words, everything has come to you through the hand of your father. It's like parents, when you give your child something. Our boys are at the age now where we can send them to the store. It's fantastic. I, but I give them money or I, whatever and say, hey, can you go and run and get this? Do they walk in the store boasting about this money that they have? Hey, look at all this money I got. No. I mean, that'd be kind of weird anyway. It's not theirs. It was given to them, and they are to steward it in a way that I have instructed them to steward it. When we think about the resources that God gives us, it's not ours. <laughs> it all belongs to God. 
we're going to talk about this in the, in the coming weeks, that there are certainly areas of faithfulness. We have to provide for our families. We have to care for the things in a home and a vehicle and all that kind of stuff. I'm, I am not saying that you should be foolish with what God has given you. I'm saying you should be obedient with what God has given to you. That's the principle here. God's after your heart. Whether that's 10%, 20%, 5%, whatever that is, God wants your heart. He wants your motives. He wants your obedience because he knows what's best for you. So would you pray with me over the next couple weeks that God would teach us what it means to be faithful in this area? And pray for me. This is not easy for me to talk about. I don't like standing up here talking about this. But it's in the word of God. And I say what the word says. So would you pray for me as we walk through this together? Let's close now in praying. Father, we are thankful that you have not left one stone of our life unturned, but that in your grace you are quick to point out where we fall short and also what you require of us. Thank you for this teaching in in Malachi 3 that has shown us, God, that you really do own everything and as the owner of all, you are the rightful possessor of all things. So, Father, I ask that you would use these times that we have together to study your word as an opportunity to teach all of us what it means to faithfully handle the gifts that you've given to us. All of your people have been given gifts. There are are talents, there are resources, there are abilities. All of these things are areas of stewardship that you call us to be faithful in. So God, I pray that you would direct us as a church. I pray that you would direct us individually, that we would follow you in obedience and not withhold anything that is rightfully yours. So please work in our hearts. And I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.